Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Todd Errett, and I'm a senior regulatory intelligence expert with Thomson Reuters. Thanks for joining us today for another wide-ranging discussion on various topics impacting compliance officers in the financial services industry. For today's discussion, I'm happy to introduce my colleague at Thomson Reuters, Richard Satrin. Richard is a veteran journalist having worked at Reuters for many years with stops along the way in his career at CNBC, Wired Magazine, Fidelity, and US News and World Report. He currently covers all things regulatory for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Thanks for joining me today, Richard. Well, thanks for having me. I think we have a good topic on hand, don't we? It appears that there's a growing share of enforcement actions which are stemming from whistleblower tips. Gary Gensler, chairman of the SEC, and enforcement director Gerber Graywall have emphasized the need to protect individuals who are reporting misconduct. Just last week, Graywall said, the SEC's whistleblower program is a critical part of our enforcement efforts. Each year, we receive thousands of whistleblower tips, and throughout the history of the program, those tips have resulted in billions in monetary recovery. So Richard, what are your thoughts on the recent, call it heightened importance on whistleblowers at the SEC? Definitely, it is central to uh, the SEC's enforcement efforts now and constitutes a, a growing share, a sizable number of cases that the agency takes with its enforcement d- division. So it's increasingly important. And in this case, the $10 million fine was levied against uh, D.E. Shaw, which is a hedge fund, a quant fund, really, a lot of genius mathematicians there, and and also a very secretive firm. And um, they were was able to take action because under Dodd-Frank, uh, the, the uh, definition of uh, covered firms was expanded to include hedge funds and private equity. So we're seeing a lot of uh, expansion of oversight and rulemaking into that area under Gary Gensler. And this is one other reflection of it, the whistleblower rule. So Richard, what do you think that is causing the, call it reemergence of, uh, or refocusing um, of, of the recent cases now after a relative pause between 2016 and now 2023 again? Two things, really. Uh, first of all, definitely Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC right now, and um, his head of enforcement, Gerber Gruel, are, are both more aggressive enforcers than their predecessors. And uh, under the tr- Trump administration, both uh, Jay Clayton and, and the president expressed some reservations about the program, even though it has quite a bit of bipartisan support from people like uh, uh, Charles Grassley and the late John McCain. So um, there's that, more enthusiasm under Gensler, but also uh, the pandemic. People were at home working remotely and they were much more comfortable calling up the SEC and giving tips. And it actually was a dramatic effect. It doubled doubled the number of, of tips and now feeds a, a very sizable 
percentage of, of the uh, SEC enforcement cases, and that will only grow because there is a huge backlog. So going back to the D.E. Shaw case that you mentioned, um, other than, let's say, the sheer size of $10 million fine, which is a bit, which is a bit, very big number. Um, you know, most of the other prior cases have been, you know, call it six figures or, or significantly smaller. What was it about the D.E. Shaw case that made it a little bit of an outlier other than the 10 million? What, what was it that, that occurred there? Well, uh, we've mentioned the fact that a, they're a hedge fund, a private firm, and what were not covered prior to Dodd-Frank or they were not considered to be covered. So that there's that. But also uh, what it brought up was the way contracts, severance contracts, employment contracts are written. That's something that the SEC is going to be scrubbing through. They found in D.E. Shaw's case that there were multiple restrictions and penalties for whistleblowers when they got their severance packages. Even though D.E. Shaw sent a firm-wide email to its employees back around 2016 saying, you must cooperate or you are allowed to cooperate and we will not interfere with you in any way. They still had the language in their contracts. So they're going to be, they're going to be going through that stuff and, and they, they do it with uh, some really powerful data analytics and they read all the disclosure documents and they can ingest a lot when they examine firms. So you're going to be, you're going to be checked for that stuff if you're a firm, private or public. Actually, I think that's an interesting point you make when you say private or public. Um, there was another recent case um, where the SEC brought a case against a entirely private company, not registered in any way, shape, or form, called Monolith Resources, um, where you know they charged them with basically violating SEC rules and regulations related to whistleblower protections against an entirely private, not publicly traded, not registered, not even a securities firm. Of any kind, it was uh, like a natural resources company. Is that correct? Yes, it was natural resource, uh, clean energy company in Nebraska, and that was an interesting case. Yes, because it, it, it's totally private, has no securities out that we know of. Uh, it, it, they are they, they, the SEC has occasionally referred to loans as a kind of security that can allow them to cover a broader range of companies. But uh, this this firm wanted to cooperate. They uh, didn't want to be breaking the, the rule, even whether they were covered or not, whether they considered themselves covered. And they were very cooperative. And they ended up with, I think, a $250,000 fine versus the Esha's $10 million. The SEC used that case both to show the the scope and the breadth of, of this initiative and also to show you cooperate, you're going to get a little tap on the wrist, probably. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Dick, you mentioned separation agreements. Um, what is it within these separation agreements? Um, you know, obviously there's 
there's often multiple parts to call them confidentiality agreements or separation agreements. Where is it that the SEC is, let's say, drawing the line or, you know, really uh, splitting hairs? Um, Confidentiality agreements are very common in separations. Um, What is it you can or cannot say now in a separation agreement that potentially is going to trigger one of these whistleblower violations? Well, I could, it's, it's a, it could be a, a long list, but I'll just give you a good example. Uh, one of the Isha's, I believe it was the Isha, one of the recent cases uh, m- made people sign to the fact that they had not talked to any agency before they could get their severance package. So it's just any language that has that element of uh, disincentivizing or, you know, uh, people from talking to the SEC or, you know, incentivizing them to tell their employer that they have not done so. And maybe even more interesting in D.E. Shaw's case, D.E. Shaw is a a quant firm that's known to use some incredibly sophisticated mathematical formulas in trading. And that was an issue for in all of the severance uh, agreements. They wanted that confidential information protected. But what the SEC did was say, you can't protect that stuff from us. Confidential agreements are fair game when it comes to whistleblowing. And even if it's work product, even if it's uh, proprietary trading formulas, the SEC has a lot of experience protecting firms from that information going public in investigations. And I don't know of many cases where there have been complaints that they've blown that cover. So that's what this case was also about, D.E. Shaw. So it becomes a very, very fine line. Obviously, you know, firms want to protect their their secret sauce or their proprietary information that any departing employee is not to divulge publicly. However, you need to be explicit that they can divulge that information to a regulator. A regulator is not the public and it would not be a violation. And I think that's interesting because in the 2016 case against uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev, they cited in that case, and I think I've got the language here, it was very broad language in their separation agreements where they asked employees to keep in strict secrecy and confidence any and all unique confidential and proprietary information belonging to the company, which obviously, you know, the the secret recipe for Budweiser or whatever, even though in the agreement, it didn't prohibit them from communicating with regulators or the SEC or anything like that. The SEC said the lack of any carve out citing the ability to be a whistleblower was enough to flag it as a, as a violation. So is that really what we've come down to from a regulatory standpoint is, you know, we're, we're really splitting hairs on the specifics of these separation agreements or these confidentiality agreements, carving out that it needs to be really, really clear that you can whistleblow without violating these things. So is, is it, am I reading that right, Richard? For sure, Todd, that is what they're doing. They are really analyzing the language of these agreements very closely. Um, 
They don't want qualifiers. They don't want conditional statements. They don't want any ambiguities. Uh, you know, they, they want definite statements saying you may talk to the SEC. You don't have to tell the company, and that cannot go into any of our employment agreements. And this isn't just this may. This is like the may and might issue where people use conditional language. It goes back to the capital gains case, which was a, a, a sort of a landmark case that established ambigu- ambiguities in securities should, should really not uh, uh, disallow the SEC from going forward in a case. It, 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 they've got to be very definite. And you should really, if you're a firm, you should really be scrubbing close, looking for any conditional language or any contradictions or anything that would be con- confusing or intimidating, certainly. So, so you just asked my final question for me, uh, Richard, is, you know, what's the practical advice for compliance and our legal departments at firms? Um, clearly, you need to sit down with your counsel and go through these separation and confidentiality agreements and be extra, extra careful. Anything to add there? Yes, just that I think compliance and legal have to be uh, proactive is what the, what the SEC likes to call it, proactive compliance. They can't sit back and like wait and see what people do. If there's trouble brewing in some part of the company and, and there might be legal problems, they really have to be proactive about letting people who come to them and, and, and people who don't even come to them know that they are not prohibited at all. It's a difficult spot for compliance and legal to be in, but they've got to be very careful to make sure there are no, no barriers because that's going to cost you money, as D.E. Shaw's case showed. Lastly, just a real quick question on the confidentiality aspect um, and on the awards themselves. The SEC has paid out significant amounts of money. I think they said they paid out over a billion dollars to whistleblowers for those tips. It's generally kind of like a 10% of the fine type of uh, formula that that they're doing recently. They, they paid a whistleblower $280 million for a tip. It must have been an awfully good tip. Do you have any thoughts on how those awards to whistleblowers are handled or calculated and the confidentiality aspect? It seems like sometimes we can add two and two together to figure out what case it probably was, but they are keeping the confidentiality aspect of, of those whistleblowers uh, pretty tight-lipped, right? Oh, absolutely. They they uh, take great pains to protect the whistleblowers as well. And uh, you referred to the $1 billion uh, awarded. It's $1.5 billion at this point, I, I think even more. Yes, there's uh, the 10 to 30% of fine can go to the whistleblower. And something like the books and records cases over the past year where the top securities firms paid one and a half billion, had that been a whistleblower giving them that information, you know, there's just talking about three to five hundred million dollars. So, you know, there's a lot of incentives on for whistleblowers to report these things. And I, I mentioned the books and records thing because it shows the importance to the SEC of data and information and the kinds of 
data points that make cases now. It's that's that's the way the SEC works. And that's why the whistleblower is important. And that's why books and records at firms have become a major issue. Uh, huge fines for, for firms that, that are blocking or not tracking their actions and on the grid. With that, I'm going to wrap things up today. I think it's been a very insightful and uh, stimulating discussion. So thank you for joining me today, Richard. Thanks, Todd. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Thomson Reuters Compliance Clarified. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. Links to various articles, uh, many written by Richard and uh, some of our other colleagues on today's subject can be found in our episode notes. Also in the episode notes, uh, you'll find a download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Thank you all very much and have a great day. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.